Welcome to At Home and Abroad with Harrison Walker. Join us each week as we follow our curiosity, diving deep into the familiar and the foreign. Reach beyond your front door as we uncover new perspectives, explore intriguing ideas, and have real conversations with the best guests. Ready for something different? Let's get started. In 2019, Hillary Messer Barrow and her future husband relocated to the remote settlement of Beaver Creek in the Canadian Yukon, just on the border of Alaska. It's a tiny distant community with less than 100 residents. Living in Beaver Creek, accessing everyday essentials isn't as easy as just going to the corner store. When Hillary needs to buy food, she drives 300 miles to the city of Whitehorse. She embarks on these 10-hour round trips every six to eight weeks and tries to accomplish as much as she can. She might visit the vet, the hardware store, see the doctor, or get her hair cut. These trips to town require planning. Food for the next couple of months for her family and their dog Chili top the priority list. But she also has to prepare for possible emergencies during her travels too. Messer Barrow brings warm clothing, a satellite communication device, water, and is as prepared as possible for a car breakdown, especially in the colder months. The only benefit of the minus 40 degree Fahrenheit temperature, though, is that there is no need to worry about groceries spoiling during the long drive home. But that drive is not easy. According to Messer Barrow, driving that distance requires a conscientious driver and a co-pilot at the ready. In her words, as the light disappears, it's not always easy to see where the road ends and the frozen ground begins. This is the land of the midnight sun in the summer months and long, dark days in the winter. When Messer Barrow moved to Beaver Creek, she didn't expect to stay long, but she soon fell in love with the community, and there were other benefits too. She's learned how to bake bread, make yogurt, and even kombucha too. And then there is the pure joy of living close to the land. Messer Barrow says that remote northern Kenda has made me appreciate everything about the outdoors. Has it all been easy? She did experience some loneliness in the early days, and adjusting to the limited daylight in the winter took a little getting used to, but overall, Messer Barrow was surprised by how well she's been able to adapt. In her words, I don't like change, so the move was petrifying, but all the things I feared were things I ended up embracing. I'm much stronger than I thought I was. I can cook, I can change a tire, I'm comfortable walking in the wilderness alone with a knife and bear spray, I can garden. That's pretty impressive. I do have romantic notions of living in the wilderness, but I think it would be a huge culture shock too. Can you imagine? Well, you come from Flintplant, so maybe mm. you wouldn't have too much trouble adjusting. Oh, I don't know about that, Walker. I've been a city girl for a long time, and you know me and bears. No thanks. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I feel like we should be taping this episode on location somewhere out there far from civilization. Are you telling me to get lost? No, uh, no. <laughs> Maybe you're just angling for a vacation. I know you, Harris. Yeah, you might be right about that. You know I'm always up for an adventure. <laughs> you are a regular tin tin. So how many <laughs> countries have you been to, Harris? Not that many, Walker. I think over 40 now, but that's just a drop in the bucket. I have many more to get to. Okay, so of all the places you've been to, what would you say is the most remote place? Uh, That's a really good question. I think off the top of my head, I think the Galapagos in Mm -hmm. terms of the distance that you have to travel to get there and the distance from the mainland. But it's much more lively on those wee little islands in the Pacific than you might think. So in terms of being away from civilization, I think I would say the Amazon jungle. My husband and I went hours 
and I mean hours deep in by Yikes. boat. Oh my gosh, on this little metal <laughs> skiff and it was pouring rain. Anyway, we were in our 20s, so we could handle it then. It was totally amazing, but it was also terrifying. So is there a remote location you'd like to go to? I think Antarctica would top the list and stay at one of the stations there. That's pretty remote. Yeah. But of course, everybody has a different concept and maybe a different tolerance of remote living. Right. Some people might consider the suburbs. as far from civilization. <laughs> it's true. And in fact, I kind of do too. <laughs> the exodus from cities during the pandemic created a whole new definition of remote living and especially working remotely. People moved to rural areas, to remote cabins, farms, or even other countries. Right. They took on a new lifestyle as well as a new way to work. But let's not forget those people to whom the term working remotely meant nothing more than simply sitting in their PJs on a Zoom call at the dining room table. <laughs> like me. Yeah, I was going to say, speaking from experience. <laughs> right. Remote, but not remote. I think a lot of people discovered that they missed the hustle and bustle of living in an urban setting, though. And not everybody is cut out to work from home. Oh, definitely not. You have to be self-motivated, and it can be easy to get distracted with home stuff particularly if you have little kids home with you. Oh, yeah. But a lot of people are returning from the remote or not remote locations to be at the office at least a couple of days a week. And let's be real. It's not practical to work from really remote places. You need good Wi-Fi. And a lot of those places, they're not going to have good Wi-Fi, Walker. Yeah, there's definitely a movement to find distance from the modern conveniences and especially the burden of technology in our lives. Mm -hmm. Many tourists are embracing the idea of a travel tech break. Yeah, that totally appeals to me too. And I think there's a growing interest in connecting to the natural world. Mm -hmm. Even if you aren't overly outdoorsy, maybe this is in reaction to being cooped up for all those pandemic years, Walker. Yeah, you might be right about that. Our guest today, Bill Cowie, truly knows what it means to live in a remote place. Over 20 years ago, he assumed the responsibility to caretake and manage the distant Isle of Rona, a 3.6-square-mile island situated in the Inner Hebrides off the west coast of Scotland. Now, Bill and his partner Lorraine are the only full-time residents on this beautiful and rugged island in the Sound of Rissay. Welcome to At Home and Abroad, Bill. Hi there. For some people, managing a remote island sounds like a dream job. Some people, like myself, I have to say. How did you come to be the caretaker of Rona? I came to put up a fence 22 years ago. Okay. And stayed, and stayed yeah, pretty much. <laughs> That's hilarious. I, I was a forestry contractor at the time, you know. I'd worked in various jobs, but I ended up working for a, a woodland company, a forestry company, mm -hmm. as generally as their man Friday type of guy. I would do everything. And they sent me out here to put up a fence around the renovated old house as the first holiday cottage, and uh, yeah, I stayed. It, it, it sort of appealed to me, you know, at the time. Yeah, what was it that appealed to you? Was it just the landscape, or <laughs> peace, peace and quiet, and on the back of a very expensive divorce, it was a nice place to come and lick your <laughs> lick your wounds, you know, <laughs> <laughs> a refuge away yeah, from the drama. I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't running away from it, but uh, yeah, it, it's 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 funny when people come to Rona. Them that get it, get it very quickly, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, you know, once you've been, it's like, yeah, it gets under your skin. So the opportunity was there to stay, so I stayed. And uh, there's a few things. Uh, my health wasn't that great. Uh, I had Lyme's disease, which I'm sure you're well aware of. I mm -hmm. didn't know I had Lyme's disease, but I had this kind of big problem that 
you know, Lyme's causes where you can function one day and then the next day you can't. Right, right. Yeah, it makes sense because your typical nine to five job yeah. wouldn't wouldn't accommodate that kind of. I, I, I was actually self employed before I came here, so I had right. a bit of flexibility, but it, you know, it it wasn't good, you know. And mm-hmm. uh, when you, when you don't know what it is, and at that time, even twenty two years ago, the medical profession they didn't want to know about Lyme's disease, and nobody knew about Lyme's disease mm-hmm. really. Uh, right, they've they've come a long way in the last twenty years. So they have. I, th- I think I think I think it's much easier to detect, and right. if they if they get it early enough, they can deal with it. But I was lucky. I reacted well to the antibiotics, and I still have it. Every you never get rid of it, but uh, mm-hmm. that doesn't bother me anymore. I don't think. I think. Oh, that's it. good news. Yeah, that's good news. So you're just going gangbusters then, there on the Isle of Rona. <laughs> Is that it? <laughs> it wasn't very difficult uh, transitioning then to this solitary life. No, I think that I mean I'm very gregarious, but um, I can I, I enjoy I enjoy solitude too. I enjoy. Peace and quiet. I enjoy just getting on with it, you know. Mm-hmm, and uh, mm-hmm. but I, you know, I can be the life and soul of a party. And yeah, I came here on my own, and and uh, I was here for three years on my own. So that was interesting, living here on nobody else, you know. Yeah. So what did you do with your time aside from all of the work that there was to do on the island? The owners had bought the island ten years before. They had a succession of uh, caretakers, and you know. I'm not saying they weren't they weren't any good, but they didn't have the skills I had, right? You know, and and uh, in my background, it fitted the job perfectly. And as it, as the job developed, it uh, what I'd done in the past was just perfect. Even right. working, even working for an insurance company, would you believe it? It's You're kidding! All, it's all applicable to what we did, you know, or what we we've done. So for the last 22 years, it's like everything I did before has, has helped me do the job that I've been doing and yeah. to de- develop it on my own way. But, yeah, I mean, there was so much to do. I did forestry work for quite a time, and uh, so I had all these skills, you know, woodcutting or fencing or fertilizing, planting, and I really enjoyed forestry. I, I love trees. I love working with trees. Um, so that was good, you know, and I think sometimes I always wanted to be a carpenter. So mm-hmm. there was a lot of that type of work to do. So that was good. And I had driven trucks and worked on farms before. So the machinery side of it was easy for me to do generators, batteries, inverters and stuff like that off grid supply. I, oh, I'm not an electrician and I don't understand it, but I make it work. So, you know, but it was three years uh, before Lorraine arrived. So it was an interesting time. <laughs> Was it a transition for Lorraine? So you kind of acclimated pretty easily. Was it a transition for her? Well, she came from London. Okay. So very so, different environment. Yeah. For a, for a week's holiday. You're kidding. Yeah, yeah. And then stayed. No, she went home and then came back for a, a work a work uh, experience and then stayed. You know, well, she went away and came back again. Yeah. So obviously you were the major draw. For her to stay. Oh, oh, I think it's, was, the isle, it's the island. It's the island. It's the major it? draw. Yeah. Yeah. So she, she's only my carer now. She's, <laughs> but no, she she's good. And uh, you know, to come from the middle of London, she's absolutely superb for for Rona. You know, I mean, you know, it's it's generally guys that want to do this. You know, and, right? And you know, Lorraine just enjoys it. You know. Uh-huh. Yeah. Does she have a similar skill set to you, or has she learned a lot? I would imagine. Not really, but she's, um, you know, she's pretty 
she's a smart cookie, you know. Yeah. Her, her, her English grammar is much better than mine. Uh, <laughs> but we bounce off each other. It's quite a good combination, you know, and I think that she's pretty smart and she'll take her time to think things through. Right. And uh, like me, I'm a bit more excitable than her. I'm the Scottish guy, you know, where she's a very calm English person, you know. Right. So it kind of works well, you know. Uh-huh. So walk me through a day. For the two of you, how does it how does it go when you don't have guests on the island? Uh, well, I'll tell you, we, we actually are not any longer the only two people on the island. Okay. So we we we've been looking for a couple for several years, and we've had a few because the workload is just too heavy. So we've got Grant and Stacy, and going on about women getting it. Grant was the guy that wanted to come to Rona in September last year because at my age now I'm gonna you know want to slow down a bit mm-hmm. um so he came and deer are his thing so deer and he's a builder so they fitted the bill and we gave him a job we liked them and he's on the way back down the motorway to where they came from the, his wife stacy said you know i don't know if i can go there you know and he it's like a dream for him right but anyway lo- long story short they they came and now that they're here stacy loves it and i'm not Does sure she? yeah She's she's actually going away back to uh, where she came from to tell her boss because she's been working from home uh, that she's not coming back. You know? Wow, so, what a huge life transition that is! Yeah, but th- th- she's a bit like Lorraine, you know. She's yeah. got it. Yeah, definitely, yeah. I know that. Um, and and Grant, I think he's maybe just trying to find his way a wee bit yet. You know. But yeah. Be, How long have they know? been there? Bill? Since, since September, you know. Since September, so. okay. So it's it's early days yet. So yeah, they're not in our face. We're not in their face, and we do, mm-hmm. you know, we don't we socialize. Maybe we see each other once a week for a drink or something. But you know, we're still very much on our own. Uh, mm-hmm. But it, 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 yeah, it's nice to have the island to yourself. But now yeah. you got to be you got to be realistic about age and you know and time and taking over. So they've got to. Uh, find their way and eventually take it over. And then we might be able to enjoy the island a wee bit more. Uh, you asked about a typical day. Well, today, for instance, we have deer on the island and they're a big, big part of, I'm passionate about red deer, even though I shoot deer, uh, we manage them, you know, mm-hmm. and we're not this sort of gung-ho gangsters with guns. We, we we do the job properly. It's like keeping sheep or cows, you know, you harvest the, right. the ones you want to harvest. And mm-hmm. we've got a... a a successful venison business. We sell a lot of venison. So today we got up, uh, I was up at six this morning, read the Times, and uh, got out and went to work at eight o'clock up to the larder and started cutting up a hind. And we had four hinds hanging in the larder, but I was there yesterday and Saturday. And they were making burgers and sausages and roasts and steaks and stuff. And Lorraine came up about 11 and started labelling the stuff that I was making. And then we had lunch and then went back up after lunch and did the same. So that was like what I did today. I'll be doing it again tomorrow morning. And then I probably have to do paperwork tomorrow afternoon. But then we've got a we've got cottages. We have two cottages. And mm-hmm. uh, we've now got a new licensing system because, you know, with health and safety nowadays, if you, you've got to make sure you don't kill your guests. Well, that's uh, important. It's important. <laughs> you want them <laughs> so to come that, back. They can't be dead. <laughs> so you've got to have all this safety stuff at the huge cost. So all that's got to be done. So that's Wednesday's job. But maybe Thursday I might go to Portree shopping. Maybe Friday we might go out and shoot another couple of deer because we've got to get some more before the end of the season. 
And then next week, we're going to Manchester for a few days. <laughs> oh, nice. A little getaway. Well, it's a really diverse set of yeah. tasks that you guys have to manage, isn't it? Yeah. Well, we've got off-grid power and we've got uh, boats. We've got a, I don't know what you call them, a backhoe digger. Right, a backhoe, yep. A backhoe, yep. yep. And uh, tractors and off-road bikes and solar panels, batteries, generators, you name it. It's all here. Are you completely yeah. off-grid there? Um, Rona? Yeah, 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 hundred percent. That's impressive. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah, impre- yeah. And even for heat, how do how do you manage your heat? No is it gas. 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 Okay. Gas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rona is rock. Some of the oldest rock right. in the world, and it's very hard. <laughs> right. <laughs> no <laughs> digging a, there. There's not a lot of soil, you know. So it. it really, it really is, you know. I mean, when you think about it, there's, you know, for the last twenty years, there's been. Two people living on Rona, and 1900, 200 people lived on this island. Wow. A lot of them, a lot of them went to Canada. Funnily enough, you know. Mm. There you go. Well, lucky mm. us. So, yeah. Bill, clearly you love living on Rona, but has there ever been a moment when you thought, "What on earth am I doing here?" <laughs> that'll be that'll that'll be the first year. In oh September. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Was there a bit of a learning curve? Not, not really. The weather was fantastic. Okay. There was so much to do. There was holiday cottages to finish, and a, we have a natural harbour here called mm-hmm. the Big Big Harbour in English. I could say more in, in Gaelic. And uh, we had lots of yachting visitors. You know, you get Canadians, you get Norwegians, you get Irish, you get Scottish, English from all over the world, you know. And generally in a year, we'll get about 500 yacht night visits. Oh, really? Coming into the harbour in the summer. So it's a very busy place. Not, It's not busy, busy, because people are coming here to get away. But mm-hmm. for about two weeks in the middle of summer, you might get about 10 yachts in, you know, for two or three nights. But over the summer, there's maybe one or two. So for the first year, up until September, I came in April, there's so much going on that you didn't really have time to think about what you were doing. You know? I see. Uh, yeah, and I've got two kids, and they were of an age. One was at university. The other guy was probably in Australia or something at the time. So they were fine. And uh, here I was in, 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 in Rona, and great weather, and shorts on all summer, and loving doing brickwork or joiner work or electrical work or any kind of thing. It was just so diverse. Mm-hmm. And then about, let's say, the first week in September, the yachts started to get less and less and diminished quite quickly. And and, and and back in the day, we had this very small boat that used to service us from Portree, and the ferryman, I was in contact with him. So I phoned up the ferryman and I said to him, you know, been a quiet week. Yeah, it's getting quiet now. I says, tell me, I haven't had a yacht in for about four nights. <laughs> and he says, he says to me, oh, that'll be them finished now. I said, what, what do you mean finished? He says, well, you know, that's the season, the season, the sailing season's over. I says, so oh, am I not likely to see any more yachts? No, probably not for a while. I says, when, when will I be back? He says, Easter time next year. I say, so who comes to Rona over the winter? He said, nobody. <laughs> so that was just the last year of your human contact for the, until next Easter. <laughs> and I'm like, you're kidding me. And he says, no, no. He says, that's the sailing season over. He says, you know, and obviously I'll have a shopping trip and stuff. And we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll see you once a fortnight, maybe. And I'm like, okay. So I sat down and looked out the window. It was a beautiful day, I remember. And there was a bottle of whiskey there. So I poured myself a wee whiskey and I drank all the whiskey. And then I, I staggered to bed and I woke up next morning with a head like 
you know. Throbbing, I, yeah. I, 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 got down, I got downstairs, had my breakfast and thought, okay, what have I done? Yeah. Uh, and I, I got sat down and I, I got a pad out and I thought, well, if I'm going to stay here, I've got to have something to do. So what am I going to do? So I wrote a list of things I was going to do. And I wish I could find that list because I'm pretty sure some of the things on that list I've never done. But I've been trying to get the better of that list ever since, you know. <laughs> and it just just keeps 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 getting longer and longer, you know. So the first 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 winter was interesting. You're living in nature. Mm-hmm. You know, you're as likely to see an otter running across your garden. Uh, you know, the, the deer now coming into the garden or eagles flying about and they get used to you and you get used to them when you're on your own in the winter. Mm-hmm. And it's quite quite amazing how uh, wildlife just takes you, you know, sort of like for granted that you're part of it. You yeah. Know? Well, speaking of which, I understand that Rona is Old Norse for rough or rugged island. But under your care, the deer population and the forest has been thriving. Um, What can you tell us about that? Well, I mean, there's a thing. The owners, the owners, the wee story about the owners. Uh, The owners are Dorothy and Arnie uh, from Denmark. And uh, Dorothy was a social worker and Arnie was a brickie. You know what a brickie is? Uh, I do not have Heather to you. No, a A a bricklayer? Yeah, you got it. Ah, okay. So he, he, re- he really is he really is a brickie and he's a lovely guy. Anyway, Arnie, uh, he, he's not your ordinary brickie because he he fell into making sculptures for a famous Danish uh, artist, Per Kirkeby, and spent the latter part of his life going around the world building installations. And okay. uh, so he's, you know, and a quite a bohemian couple, I would say. And anyway, Doherty inherited a lot of money. And back in the day, they were investing money in Scotland, Danish folk, and they had no idea about investments. They'd inherited this heap of money. So they actually bought an island. You know, and it's <laughs> like you could make a movie out of it. And they've been plowing money into it for the last 30 years. Basically, since I've been here, they have just let us get on with it. They've never, ever, would you believe, in 22 years, asked or told me to do anything on Rona. Well, that Isn't sounds that like the best type of employers around <laughs> so one day i was out in the field with him and i said arnie i said you really should be telling us what to do you know i said do you know what you're doing with this island and he says no he says but we didn't know what we were doing with the island but now that you're here and now lorraine's here now we know what we're doing mm-hmm. and he never enlarged in it so we must be doing something right so have you been doing something specific for the forest for example to allow it to thrive I've got a, I've got a, you know, not a background in forestry, but I, I, I ended up working in forestry, okay. uh, doing all aspects of forestry work. And when I came here, Doherty did come and she said, "What would you do mm-hmm. with the island?" And I said, without even thinking, and I said, "Well, the first thing I would do is get some red deer." And she said, "Well, why don't you do that?" So I phoned up a guy who sells deer and said, "Can I have six females and two males?" So they took them over on the boat, and I'm sure you'll find it on the internet. Mm-hmm. The, the when the deer came in stretchers, they were stoned, they had immobilin, and they were knocked out for an hour, and that was quite fun because they were really high. The deer was <laughs> the deer were really singing. Quite a scene. Yeah, they were going, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> bonkers, you know. So we let them go, six females and two stags, and uh, we have about 150 to 200 now on the island. Oh, my goodness. And we've, we've culled uh, over 300 in that okay. time. 
So okay. we've a very successful venison business. We love the deer. We know them. We know quite a few of them personally. We've got a wee one outside that we call Tufty because yeah. the mother abandoned it last year and she just knocks about here and she's very small. So nobody's allowed to shoot her. So we hope she survives tonight. But uh, that's her. How young so, is she? Uh, she'll be two now. She looks okay. like a one-year-old. She should be even three, but she looks like a one-year-old, you know. She's yeah. never going to grow. She, she, Her mother didn't have any milk for her, so she abandoned her. So we can kind of spot these things. But anyway, at the time, there was a, you know, in Canada, I don't think you have much problem with regeneration. The, the trees grow pretty well out there. Uh, whereas in this country, they struggle because of the number of deer or sheep. So we had no sheep or deer on the island and there was a regeneration scheme going on. So the, the trees had no herbivores. So all of a sudden the birds started coming out with the heather. Oh. And if if we didn't have a herbivore in it, if we didn't have a our deer in it, then we would have a jungle. So in, in the place <laughs> in, in, in the places where the yeah. trees would grow, mm-hmm. because the, the the topography of the island is such that I think more than half of it is solid rock. <laughs> but in the hollows and the valleys, there's a lot of good uh, soil. Not good, but the soil that birch will grow in. So they've got these fantastic green valleys, just wee valleys, mm-hmm. and the deer love them. Well, I've got to ask you, and and for our listeners as well, for those hankering after a similar life and profession. Got to ask you for your advice, Bill. What would you <laughs> recommend? <laughs> Can you share? When we advertised for a couple, God, I can't remember how many applications Lorraine had. There's a lot of people would love to do it, but the reality is, you know, it, it's far removed from the romance of it. Yeah, it's 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 it's. I don't know. I don't know what the skill set would be. I mean, there's lots of guys come here that are pretty good at what they do, but whether they could suffer it long term, you know, or react to things. Yeah. I mean, I think if anybody wanted to try this life and it was in their heart and they really they need to they need to scratch that itch and do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if they can get if they can get the opportunity. I mean, right. what's the worst what's the worst that can happen? They can walk away and say, Well, at least I tried, you know. At least I gave it a go. I gave it a go. So I think it's unfair of me to say, Well, you're no use or you're no use. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we had something like ten thousand applications for the job. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I'm surprised by that. Yeah, they were coming. Well, the, the Russian-Ukraine thing started at, at the time. So there was a hell of a lot of Russians. <laughs> and you had and poor and we would have loved and you know, I have to say Lorraine answered every one of them. Really? That's wonderful. Yeah, she told him she didn't like what Putin was doing. And only one said, he'd only one supporter, which was good, you know, that there was only one. But, um, you know, of the, the, you know, we had South Africans, we had Americans, you know. Everybody. We had a lot of people. Do you have many Canadians? I can't remember. (laughs) I don't think so. You know, I mean. Surprised Why? by that too. <laughs> We've got a lot of remote places. Let me yeah. tell you, Bill. Yeah, yeah. we don't yeah. need to leave this country to find a remote place. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's all they tell me. But uh, yeah, there's a, there's a comp- there was a competition to win a remote place in Canada on television here. Something. Oh, was there like or was it yeah. Alaska? I think I well, saw maybe it that was Alaska. Show. Yeah, 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 and it was all Brits. I think yeah. we're competing for this yeah. homestead. I loved yeah. that show. I watched it from start to finish because All right. okay. I think my husband and I fashion ourselves as a couple who could handle it. But <laughs> in actuality, Bill, I don't think it would go so well. 
<laughs> just to be honest. You gotta love your husband. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, but I mean, I think I think I think it's funny, you know, that you you know, well, Lorraine here, it's three hundred and sixty-five days of the year, and a lot of couples and relationships need space, you know, they need to do their thing or see their go off with their girlfriends or boyfriends or get out on the motorbike or do that. Yeah. But it's like you 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 just you you go down a gear. Mm. You know, we work hard and we run about and we do things fast, but you, it's it's a different pace altogether, you know. And when we go to the mainland, it's frightening. You know? <laughs> I bet it's a bit, a bit of a culture shock going back. Oh, but we but, but we do like somebody coming with a meal on a plate and putting it in front of you and then taking the plate <laughs> away. You know, there is something like to that. say for that. Yeah, but I think a love of nature, uh, a love of work. You know, if yeah. you like hard work. And I remember reading a book, and it's not my favourite. The author Frank Fraser Darling is a he's a famous conservationist in this country long before his time. He wrote a book, Island Years, and I remember I had this book at the time, and I read it. And the preface it said, "If you you know if you come to an island or if you go to a remote location, the last thing you want to do is become a lotus eater. You have to you have to have a purpose." Mm-hmm. So I would say anybody that wants to come to or try to get into a remote island, they need to go there with an idea. They're going to build a shack. They're going to be, make a distillery. You know, they're going to do this or this or this. They're going to be self-sufficient. Mm-hmm. They're going to have mm-hmm. a polytunnel. They're going to be able to hunt. They're going to be able to smoke the food, dry the food, do everything like that. But, you know, I think that the perfect thing would be to have a wage because we all need to have some money. Yes. Uh, and uh, the perfect thing is where we are. You know? Well, Bill, I think you may have inspired many of our listeners to seek out their own private piece of paradise today. If you'd like to follow along with Bill's adventures on the Isle of Rona, you can find his blog at www.isleofronablog.com or on Facebook too. Thanks so much, Bill. No problem. You're welcome. <laughs> I have to say, Bill makes it sound like a dream, but really he has such a robust skill set and he and Lorraine complement each other so well. Mm-hmm. I doubt it'd be easy for some others. Yeah, I mean it though. When I say I'm going to visit Walker, <laughs> he's a lovely guy and it does look so idyllic. Perfect for a tech break, don't you think? Okay, let me know how it goes then, Harris, if you decide to go. But you know, the Isle of Rona may not even be considered as remote by some. Yeah, I bet that's true. Do you know where is considered to be the most remote place on Earth? No. Have you ever heard of Point Nemo? I don't think so. Where is it? Well, it's located about a thousand plus miles from the closest population, the South Pacific Gyre, which is a big rotating ocean current. Yikes. Yeah, my thoughts exactly. Point Nemo is definitely beyond remote. Check this out. The rotating current I mentioned doesn't allow for nutrients to flow, and so no major life can live in the area. It is said that the only regular visitors are those involved in space exploration 400 miles above. Wow. It is thought that there might be quite a bit of space shuttle debris in the area. Wow. So why is it called Point Nemo? Well, it got its name from the captain of the submarine in 20,000 leagues under the sea. Mm. And here's a little fun fact for you, Harris. Mm. Nemo is Latin for nobody. Well, I learned something new today. (laughs) That is very appropriate. Okay, I have a faraway place for you that is surprisingly easier to visit. It is Etokortumit. I think I said that right, Walker. (laughs) It's a 15-letter word, so I'm not so sure. You can only do your best there, Harris. True. 
A Torker Tumit is located in Greenland, a place I am desperate to visit. So it's already off the beaten path, but this particular place is 500 miles from the closest city. Wow, Beaver Creek looks like a hop, skip, and a jump to the closest grocery store in comparison. No kidding, right? So how do you get there? So you fly into Reykjavik, Iceland, followed by a flight to Akureyri, and finally a flight to Constable Point in Greenland. Then, and this is my favorite part, Walker... You hail a dog sled to take you to your final destination. Local residents are really happy to help you flag one down, (laughs) as well as help organize camping trips. And from what I hear, the northern lights there are pretty spectacular. Oh, I bet they are. So if you go, but you're allergic to dogs, you can also take a (laughs) helicopter instead. And I did hear that cruise ships are stopping there as well. I wonder what impact that has on its tiny 450-person population. Well, it's probably good for their local economy, but culturally, I don't know. Mm, so yeah. you did mention your Antarctic dream trip, Harris. You must have heard of the Desolation Islands, right? I haven't, but they don't sound happy. <laughs> <laughs> These islands are located in the South Indian Ocean near to Antarctica. Apparently, there are no known native peoples there, only French scientists who are studying the wildlife. Oh, cool. So what's it like there? Mm, lots of steep cliffs, windy, and it's a bit chilly. Sounds like you have to pack a parka. (laughs) Likely. If you decide to visit, the boat only goes there four times a year. So you have to plan ahead and start saving too. Why? Well, it's not cheap, Harris. It's $18,000 US a person. Holy moly. I hope that's round trip. (laughs) My thoughts exactly. Now, if you have a hankering to visit somewhere a little warmer... You could plan a holiday to the door to hell in Turkmenistan. Now, I think I've heard about this place. It's that burning crater in the middle of the (laughs) Karakum Desert, right? Right. It's a 230-foot wide burning hole in the ground. Apparently, Soviet scientists accidentally dug into a methane reserve back in 1971 while exploring for oil, and it's been burning since. I have to admit to you, Walker, I don't think the door to hell is going to make my bucket list. (laughs) But for those of our listeners who might be interested, how do you get there? Well, it's tricky. There are no roads, no highways, no buildings, nothing. I've heard it described as simply just a burning hole in the middle of the desert. Wow. It's recommended that you book a guided tour with a reputable tour company. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. You don't want to accidentally fall in there. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds pretty unique, a pretty strange place to go. So why do you think anyone might want to spend their vacation and hard-earned money traveling to a place so distant and difficult to get to? Some locations are so remote that not only is transportation difficult, there's no hotels, nowhere to buy food. Yeah, well, I could easily ask, why do people bungee jump and skydive, Mm. right? I'm assuming that there's some degree of excitement or adventure with going somewhere that's totally off the beaten track, somewhere that not everybody else goes. According to Natalie Marie on her travel blog, Tilly Travels, tourists traveling to remote places might be seeking something different. They might be fed up with the crowds at the better known tourist destinations, and remote locations really allow people to disconnect. Yeah, I would think that part of the appeal, too, is experiencing a place that is relatively unknown and untouched. Mm -hmm. Natalie Marie says, remote places tend to be incredibly beautiful as they've not been changed much by humans. So you really get a sense of a place and can see it exactly how it's meant to be. Well, that sounds a bit wonderful. It does. In her article for World Nomads, Joanna Tovia spoke with Lonely Planet Vice President of Experience Tom Hall, who explained the appeal of traveling to unconventional destinations. He said, there's an element of immersion which is absolutely inherent in going to more remote places. 
The opportunity for more intimate and personal experiences is stronger, and the chance to meet people who actually live there and to learn about their lives is easier if you're in a place where there are fewer other visitors. This all makes sense to me. Yeah, to me too. Interestingly, a 2021 Bookings.com sustainable travel report reported that of the 29,000 people who were involved in that research, two-thirds said they wanted an authentic experience, and 65% said they wanted to avoid popular destinations because they didn't want to increase over tourism in those areas and rather wanted to bring the benefits of tourism to less visited communities. Okay, that sounds good, theoretically. Yeah, theoretically. It provides income to these communities, which typically aren't tourist hotspots. So that's a good thing. Yeah, but there has to be an environmental impact, no? Yeah, you would think, and more. Because these locations are difficult to get to, they often require multiple flights and other forms of transportation, which, of course, have a negative impact on our planet. And it is important to note that just because you can get to a destination doesn't mean that you should actually maybe be there. Your (laughs) presence may not have a positive impact on the local community. Right. And many of these distant locations might be ecologically sensitive. Exactly. This is definitely an important issue to consider. Joanna Trovia did highlight the effects of the growing tourism industry in Antarctica as an example. She pointed out that it's likely that interaction between tourists and wildlife could possibly negatively affect the local animal population. And that's not something we want, right? National Geographic also has posed the question, should there be places on Earth that are closed off to visitation? Should the wilderness be restricted in some way? Just what I was thinking. Yeah, there's so many factors to be considered. It's been suggested that some sites be completely closed and perhaps just offer virtual experiences instead. Two summers ago, I visited the Lascaux Caves Mm. in France, and these caves are adorned with exceptional prehistoric art, but you can't actually see that art firsthand. In fact, they created an entire replica of the cave, accurate down to the last detail, and truly, you would not know the difference. You can also view a virtual tour of the caves on the website. So the actual site is fully protected. Wow, that's pretty neat. Yeah, it's very, very well done. And other sensitive locations limit the number of visitors too via a lottery system, which can allow tourists on the site during limited hours, or some even require visitors to sign a contract stating that they will be respectful of the site. Okay, I imagine that different locations may have their own unique needs based on the potential risks posed by tourism. Yeah, absolutely. Take Fjerlogerlover Canyon. It became crazy popular when Justin Bieber made his video for I'll Show You there. Is that in Iceland? Yeah, they actually had to close that location, Walker. The environmentally sensitive area needed time to heal from the high number of tourists who visited. Wow, that's really too bad. Mm Mm-hmm. Most experts do believe that closing a site should be avoided if possible and should only be undertaken if there are no other options available. Well, it does seem drastic, but it sounds like it was necessary. Apparently it was, but there are real benefits to tourism. According to Tiffany Mizrahi, Vice President of Policy and Research for the World Travel and Tourism Council, in Rwanda, high-value tourism permits generate over $18 million per year contributing to the repopulation of gorillas from a mere 254 in 1981 to 600 in 2019. And I want to share a little fun fact with you, Walker. Okay. I just found out that (laughs) Charles, the silverback gorilla at the Toronto Zoo, and I are the same age. Well. (laughs) 
wasn't what I was expecting to hear. <laughs> Twinsies, there you go. Well, that's amazing. Well, there you <laughs> so go. So much to think about. So much to think about. We've said this before, but if you're interested in remote tourism, please do your best to be sustainably conscious. Do your research. And if you're going with a tour, make sure your operator is reputable. Minimize your time in the air. If you can, take the train or a boat. Tread gently. Be respectful of the local people, wildlife, and the land. And take your time. Do your homework. Yes, this is an important message in a culture where people are used to getting what they want, Harris, and getting it fast. Too true. If you considered all of this and you're still making the trek, be prepared. Think about the risks. They can become much more real when you're in an unfamiliar location, miles and miles away from emergency services and even other people. As the Boy Scouts say, be prepared, Walker. Oh, accidents happen, Harris, Mm. and illnesses like gastroenteritis. The risk of that is very high in remote locations, according to doctors Tony Hazel and Colin Tidy. Yeah, and it's not fun, speaking from personal experience. And without medical care, though, it could be really dangerous. Oh, it can be. Be cautious of what you eat and drink, and maybe even bring portable water purifiers. And remember... Fruits and veggies may have been washed in contaminated water. I think people forget about that. Mm -hmm. Be careful, too, of meat in areas where refrigeration might be less likely to be available. Yeah. And if you're going far off the beaten track, it's probably a good idea to visit your local travel clinic and make sure you have the proper vaccines and maybe even some just-in-case meds. Mm. A travel clinic doctor will be up on all the latest at your destination, and sometimes vaccines are even required to enter some countries. Right. And all of this is even more important if you are considering relocation to a remote location, like our friend Bill Cowie. Amanda Room, in an article for Forbes, says some city slickers have a fantasy about escaping the rat race and retiring to a remote location. And I have to admit, I'm one of those people, Walker. Oh, you and me both. Yeah. She makes some important observations, though. She says that although we may be in great health when we retire, our health isn't always going to be without its challenges. So if you're thinking of moving to a remote location, think through how easy it will be to live there as you age. Right. This is something Bill touched upon. In fact, Statistics Canada conducted a study that revealed that Canadians living in remote locations experienced a higher chance of unnecessary death than those in heavily populated areas. The study was focused on what they called avoidable mortality, which refers to preventable premature deaths. Between 2011 and 2015, there were over 400,000 premature deaths in the country, and 72% of deaths were avoidable. Really? Wow. Is this due to the fact that they didn't have access to proper medical care? Yes, there is less access to all types of medical care in remote areas, and according to CBC reporter Kelsey Mohammed, there are lots of contributing factors too, like emergency dispatch time, wait times, and poor weather. Not surprisingly, most of these preventable deaths were injuries. Well, certainly time is of the essence when an injury happens. Right. And think of the aftercare, too. What if you need to hire help in your recovery? Mm. Amanda Room also points out that distance from family and friends can pose problems, though perhaps a little less now with the internet and FaceTime, but loneliness can be a real issue that may be encountered that you might not expect. Yeah, and mental health is health. Yeah, I think it's important to understand the trade-offs, the benefits, and the drawbacks of a major move. Think it all through. Yeah, even if it takes a little of the romance out of the situation, Mm. there can be some real complexities to this sort of lifestyle. Definitely. And I bet some people, though, are making impulsive decisions to move far, far away. Like when going through a nasty divorce or losing their career, people looking for a fresh start. Yeah, I bet. And it's just easier to do these days. You can even take your job with you. 
Sky Mariano highlights some reasons to become a digital nomad in her HuffPost article. And one of these reasons, living more immersed in nature can be really uplifting. And we know Bill would support that. So what do you think, Harris? Are you convinced? Oh, you're preaching to the converted <laughs> walker. My postcard to you is already in the mail. Thank you for joining us at At Home and Abroad with your host, Harrison Walker. If you enjoyed this episode, you would be a real gem if you would rate and review our show. It helps us to grow and expand our reach. You can also subscribe to follow us each week as we continue the conversation. Find us on Instagram at at Harrison Walker or visit us at www.homeandabroadpodcast.com. We have great merch, just saying. And of course, we would love to hear from you. And for you truly dedicated fans who have listened all the way to the end of this episode, we offer exclusive interviews, outtakes, challenges, and more on our paid channel. Not even the cost of a latte once a month, depending, of course, on where you buy your coffee.